Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nexus Podcast. I'm your host, James Dice. Each week, I fire questions at the leaders of the smart buildings industry to try to figure out where we're headed and how we can get there faster without all the marketing fluff. I'm pushing my learning to the limit, and I'm so glad to have you here following along. This episode is a conversation with Ryan Baxter, who's a prop tech advisor to the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, aka NYSERDA. We talked about how New York City real estate is unique, the top five pitfalls for technology vendors trying to get a foothold there and anywhere, I would add, and then the past, present, and future of NYSERDA's real-time energy management program, aka RTEM, and finally, the exciting hackathon initiative, the RTEM team launched earlier this year. So without further ado, please enjoy this episode, the next podcast with Ryan Baxter. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the show. Can you introduce yourself? Happily. Excited to be here. I'm Ryan Baxter. I wear a few hats, but most notably, I am prop tech advisor to the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority, a role I like to refer to as prop tech Santa Claus. Optics Santa Claus. Okay, you have to explain that. Why do you refer to that? Of course. And so my role at NYSERDA has largely focused over the last four years on designing and implementing the world's leading prop tech incentives. And part of that entails helping NYSERDA determine what's naughty and what's nice as it relates <laughs> to building upgrades. Okay. And over the last few years, I've been able to parachute my way into over 300 building upgrade projects, impacting over 140 million square feet of office and multifamily in the five boroughs, over a quarter of a billion dollars in total project costs, against which NYSERDA has approved over $44.5 million in incentive POs, hence Santa Claus. I <laughs> uh, love it. Well, we're going we're gonna to dig into NYSERDA a little bit and, and NYC a little bit. I'd love to hear though first, like before you got to this role, what's your, what's your background? Sure. And so I had a non-traditional route to prop tech. It really started while I was a lobbyist for the Real Estate Board of New York, a role I feel I was born for because... I grew up in Midtown Manhattan on 57th Street in a 50-story apartment building. Okay. And so, and so from the time I was a young child, I've had a deep resentment for buildings with fewer than three elevators. <laughs> and so I became a lobbyist to spout pro-growth, pro-development advocacy because ultimately I would like to see New York City reach its potential, build way more housing and ultimately become the greatest city in the world. And so I spent, geez, I guess it feels like a lifetime ago, but I spent six years as a lobbyist at Redney. There I worked on everything from affordable housing incentives to sustainability to technology initiatives and I really got a sense for prop tech when I was leading a campaign to enable cogen in the city back before it was a bad word, back before we felt so strongly about on-site 
fossil fuel use. But in the before times, there were a number of Rebney members who were looking to improve their marketability and operations through cogen installations. But Con Edison and other utilities had convinced the Public Service Commission, which regulates all utilities, that you know, running cogen plants is super hard. And not only should Con Ed be the only entity that runs them, but you know, if we were to allow everyone and anyone to run them, all privately run cogen plants might fail simultaneously. Oh man. Which is why they were able to convince the Public Service Commission to allow the standby tariff how much you pay for standby power to exceed the cost of how much you would pay for power, creating this meaningful disincentive to these installations. And it was Hudson Yards' cogen plant that really forced this to Rebney's priority list. And I was able to break a 10-year backlog within rate case proceedings to create regulatory relief that benefited them and a number of other installations such that related cogen plant has been profitable from day one of operations. And that was when I had this eureka moment. And I go, wait a minute, there's technology that makes real estate more viable, more attractive, more than it would be otherwise. And that started me down a path that I've been on ever since. Can you go right back real quick to why cogen's a bad word today? I just want you to explain <laughs> that to people. Sure. And so we now have to focus not just on efficiency, but decarbonization and burning fossil fuels on site, even if you are doing so to create electricity and heat more efficiently than you would otherwise be able to access those resources. It's still not a great way to reach our climate goals. And so increasingly for the last, I'd call it eight, 10 years in particular, there has been a movement away from on-site fossil fuel use and in particular cogen installations. Got it, got it. Okay, so you, you were a lobbyist and then, and then what? So going back a few years, I was reading the tea leaves and it seemed like it was about to be a very bad time to be a real estate lobbyist. It, it seemed like between a number of policy priorities and a growing sentiment towards a more democratic approach to politics, I didn't want to be in the danger zone anymore. And okay. so I hung up my lobbying career after, you know, writing city and statewide law helping bring about tens of billions of dollars in economic impact. But I, I wanted to find a way to maintain my relationships with a lot of these real estate companies. I wanted to find a way to pursue work that made me feel better inside. And so on my way out the door, I was able to do some lobbying on my own behalf to convince NYSERDA that they should hire me as their real estate whisperer. Okay. At the, at the time, they were struggling a little bit because they had just launched the Clean Energy Fund, a brand new $5 billion initiative. And in so doing, they had to 
terminate all of their existing programs. You know, there are a lot of real estate companies who are very unhappy with that choice, mm. they believe. Okay. And it complicated NYSERDA's ability to drive adoption of its new incentive programs. And so I was able to convince them that with my assistance, we could resolve some of that market perception and meaningfully increase participation in new programs. Okay. So I've been PropTech Advisor since the end of 2018. PropTech Advisor, Santa Claus, and Real Estate Whisperer, all in one. Good names, right? <laughs> yeah. Nice personal branding, I think they call that. That's great. Um, so I'd love to start this conversation off with just NYC as a whole. Can you talk about what makes uh nyc real estate the real estate there unique in that marketplace itself sure and so at its core new york city real estate is unique because of new york city's history new york city is arguably the most important city in the world because it has been first in so many regards new york city invented american capitalism it invented multiculturalism as we know it it was the prototype for industrial transition into a service economy. And ultimately that has led to a lot of inflated egos, which is understandable, but within the real estate market, one of the most distinguishing elements is who owns what. Mm. By that, I mean, the largest owner of real estate in the city of New York is the city of New York, our municipal governments. And while that might not strike you as all of that odd, consider, if you will, that the municipal government's annual budget here in New York City is in fact larger than the next 19 largest US city government municipal bu budgets combined. Combined. So it, it, combined. It, it's a massive player and ultimately some of the most renowned real estate companies in the world, some of the largest in the world, only own and manage a fraction of what the city of New York owns. And so that dynamic is unique. Similarly, we have some strange elements to our market that kind of go against some of the fundamentals of real estate as most of the world would know it. For example, we have basement windowless space in Midtown Manhattan that leases for more per square foot than the top of Willis Tower in Chicago. And you're like, well, how could that make sense? But it has a lot to do with the fact that our city limits haven't grown since the 19th century. And so we've always had very little land with which to develop and market in that in turn has increased how much it costs to pursue real estate here. Mm. For example, you have talked a lot about the 330-300 rule with mm -hmm. a number of your guests, but wouldn't you know it? We have at least two office buildings today in Manhattan that are charging $300 a square foot in rent. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole paradigm so of how we go about exactly we do things a, a bit differently here and it 
has put New York City in this space where we are the exemplars of a number of things, including the disconnect between landlords and space users. COVID was a huge wake-up call in that regard because there are presumably millions of New Yorkers who feel their window ventilated apartments are somehow better ventilated than their office building. Mm. And it, it speaks to a lot of the complacency we have here that's unique here because, you know, for decades and decades, you could get a 25 year lease signed, be sitting pretty, not have to worry about your asset or what's going on in it at all. Maybe you did a pneumatic control upgrade once upon a time, but you're just sitting pretty on a beach somewhere. And now we're seeing a movement towards providing a space that is much more supportive of users, one that's much more focused on occupier or space user comfort, wellness, productivity. And I think that's where, you know, shout out to Aaron Lapsley and the Enviro Suite guys, but that's where indoor environmental quality is really taking off. And again, where New York City is unique from just about anywhere else in the world, because we're going to be at the forefront of all of those improvements. I love it. As you're talking about that, we're hearing all this honking going on in the background too. It's just, it puts it right into the perfect setting as you're explaining the city. And uh, yeah, and I was there a couple of months ago and I just loved walking around thinking about all these changes happening in the midst of all these massive historical landmarks, really. Um, you, you've sort of been in this prop tech world said, since you said you sort of transitioned into this Santa Claus role. How about when, when that history intersects with technology and how technology is sort of um, available to help with this transition, right? What have you seen happen so far as these New York City landlords and, and building owners have started to implement technology? Has it gone well? Has it, has it not so well? What, what's been your assessment? Yeah, and so I am a bit biased, I suppose, but it does strike me that when a technology becomes expected, New York City landlords are first to getting the best and brightest put into their buildings. So a wonderful example that folks regularly exclude from prop tech are elevators. We have some of the best elevators in the world. <laughs> we see landlords modernize their elevators with great regularity without much hubbub or struggle. However, when it comes to less established companies, particularly prop tech startups, there are a number of pitfalls that I feel have created this perception that mm. New York City real estate hates prop tech, hates technology, is a <laughs> bunch of dinosaurs that can't be bothered. But you know, a lot of it is just a fundamental misunderstanding of what's driving decision-making in real estate. And so the top five pitfalls I've seen in my prop tech experience among startups are, I'll list them and then we can touch on each one quickly. Okay. Number one, this is something you've talked about a lot. They don't know what problem they're solving. Mm -hmm. Number two, they don't know who to pitch their solution to. Yep. Number three, they don't know how to pitch their solution. Yep. 
Number four, they don't know what to request from their pitch. Okay. And number five, they don't know how long it will take. And, and so the, to drill into the issue one of those quickly on not knowing what problem to solve, I can't tell you how many awesome entrepreneurs I've seen decide, hey, Microsoft Excel sucks. We need a purpose-driven solution. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, ah, kudos for having passion and wanting to do something. But if you are just doing something because you can, that's not a great way to market yourself in New York City real estate. And so the five business cases, I've, the top five business cases I've seen for prop tech are unlocking new revenue, improving operational efficiency, improving customer satisfaction, enabling process automation, and improving data management. Okay. If you, your solution isn't doing one or more of those five, you probably aren't going to do well here, at least. Which leads into the next pitfall of not knowing who to pitch. Because a lot of folks are like, oh, I got to pitch the CEO. I got to take a top-down C-suite approach to marketing my products and services. And that's understandable because it seems like a more straightforward approach. But if your product is to be used by chief engineers and you're pitching the CEO of a real estate company, you're going to create a lot of tension unnecessarily. And so knowing who to pitch based on what your solution is and who benefits from it, critical. Totally. But that, that, that's not enough because once you know who to pitch, you got to know how to pitch. And so being able to speak to the specific priorities of the target you have in mind is key. A CEO might be more interested in improving the culture of their company than the cybersecurity, which they put on the CIO, CTO. The asset manager might be focused on NOI overall else. The property manager might only care about tenant experience. Your chief engineer might only care about improving the time efficiency of their work. And so being able to relate your solution to those priorities in the language that matters to the user, super key. But yeah, you know, real quick, we call that yeah. in our in our course, we, we teach similar mindset, right? And we, we call it the layers of value proposition. So you might start with one stakeholder and what their key value proposition or their key driver would be. And then you have to look at all the different layers of the organization and just like, turns into what some people call layer cake, but I don't, I don't really call it that, but yeah, the, stacking the layers on top of each other, basically. I like that. I like that a lot. And for the folks who are successful enough to have their cake, another huge pitfall is not knowing what to ask for. You've gotten all of the yeses and support you feel you need. And then, you know, you see a, these startups out there ask for the moon. They want to deploy across the entire portfolio. They want an equity investment. They want someone to join their board. They want to be able to market everything as a case study along mm -hmm. the way. And, you know, in individual instances, individual apps can make sense, but there is not nearly enough time paid to prioritizing what's most important. And, you know, starting small and then scaling is always a better approach than asking for everything because the last pitfall of not knowing how long this stuff takes, 
you get everything right. You, you have a real value prop, you've pitched the right people in the right way, you've asked for something that is more easily implemented than others. And so you feel like, all agreed, good to go. But then, you know, you follow up every week for eight months, not making any headway until you finally are of the mind that, ah, this is all a waste. They lied to me. They're not worth my time. I'm just going to move on. But, you know, if you had gone in with the knowledge that in New York City real estate, especially in the energy management space, you're looking at a 12 to 24 month sales cycle, longer if any of your targets transition midstream, you, you would be better able to succeed because a big part of this is the reticence of real estate companies to believe that these solutions are going to be around for a long time. Yeah. And if you can't inspire confidence that you're going to be around in five, 10, 15 years, then you're not going to do well. And so being able to uh, accommodate a 24 month sales cycle is a great way to differentiate yourself. Fascinating. I feel like you just gave a masterclass in prop tech sales, but it, what I like to tell people is that even if you don't feel like you're a salesperson today, we're all, everyone in this, in this industry that listens to this podcast, we're all in sales, right? We're, we're all trying to change the status quo in some way. <laughs> and I love those pitfalls. Those are great. Those are great. Can you go back to number one around um, the, you mentioned data management. I just want to pick that up as, a, as an example. How do you make the financial case for better data management? Like what's the ROI on that and how is that calculated? Yeah. And so this is an area that I think is evolving. It's particularly exciting because now we're seeing a movement towards ESG, unlike anything we've seen previously, yeah. where now, if you are unable to measure and monitor your consumption in a granular way, you, you can't possibly manage it and reduce your carbon emissions. And so in this particular instance, we're seeing a movement to say, hey, historically, we haven't cared about a number of these data streams, whatever. We, we don't need our... BMS to talk to our tenant equipment because who cares what the tenant equipment's doing? We mm -hmm. get paid just the same. We, we haven't needed our computerized maintenance software to talk to anything else because as long as we are handling our hot and cold calls and making sure we're keeping everything running tip top, what value is there in consolidating things? But Increasingly, we're seeing there's time savings associated with hmm. having everything come together in a unified and actionable way. You, you don't need as much folks focused on as many things if you can have all of the data streams consolidated and interacting with one another in a more productive manner. That's also where we can start bleeding into the process automation value prop more easily because if you can create a more enterprise 360 platform for every piece of data created through your operations than the idea that you'll have to be as worried about your staff 
transitioning and losing some of the operational brain trust that helps you meet your tenant expectations is lessened. Because hmm. now, if all of the data is in the right spot, you can begin thinking through the systems and processes that will reduce the need for, you know, the 70-year-old chief engineer who's been showing up at the building at 4 a.m. every day, making yeah. sure everything's working as is, even though it may not be necessary, but nonetheless, has that person had such a wealth of experience in dealing with issues that we are seeing more investments, more business decisions being driven by a desire to steal companies against those staff losses and transitions. Got it. Yeah, totally, totally agree. I see that, see that happening elsewhere. In New York City, though, I'm just curious, how is, are things like efficiency and time savings, like operational efficiency and time savings? How do, how do landlords think about, building owners think about the actual ROI? Because they're not going to fire that 70-year-old guy right? Yeah. that's managing. They're, they're not necessarily firing people when they're saving time uh, through efficiency in operations, how, how is that ROI made then when they, when they sort of go to justify that to their bosses? Yeah. And so the leaders of the industry are increasingly using asset value to justify these mm. improvements, because it, it's not just about what the simple payback is for a improvement within the building. It's, Oh, can I now underwrite at a higher value to make the cost of capital cheaper or to make my asset more attractive to a prospective institutional purchaser or investor? That piece I think is, is increasingly important because we're seeing a broader industry-wide consolidation. The big folks are getting bigger. And what's nice is Whereas historically, the more ROI-driven approach would preclude some of these larger folks from caring about a 90-year-old Class C office with an average rent roll of 40 bucks a square foot. Now they're seeing an arbitrage opportunity because if they can bring some of their procedural and process excellence from their Class A office buildings to this Class C office, now that Class C office has much more upside and there's a larger potential for them to be able to appeal to ESG-minded investors who you know, want to be able to see very tangibly how you are reducing the carbon footprint of your assets. And that's not something that's easy in a super Class A office. Those are running really, really well in a lot of instances. And so the value proposition to those ESG investors is lessened. But because there are only so many of them and the largest players are increasingly competing with one another to attract interest from those investors, I am hopeful that we'll see a much more holistic approach to justifying some of these improvements. Because if at the end of the day, you're saving more carbon than your competitor, you should outperform. Got it. Got it. So it's like a direct link between because we have these technologies installed, this asset's going to be worth more. Is that what you're saying? Yes, exactly right. And hopefully in the short term, you're seeing the actual rents increase, but particularly 
later this decade, I think we'll see that prior to those rents increasing, the assets themselves will be more sought after by the folks who have experience with decarbonization. Hmm. Interesting. All right, let's jump into NYSERDA. Can you talk about NYSERDA big picture wise? What, what is it? Sure. And so the New York State Energy Research and Development Authority was created as a public entity in the 1970s to reduce New York State's carbon footprint and create jobs. Over the past few decades, it's done everything and anything energy related from helping with renewable energy, helping with renewable energy credits, every energy efficiency upgrade you can imagine. It even gets super deep into obscure things like creating wood chips that have less pollutants for folks in upstate New York who still use stoves and cabins and things. But all of that is to say it exists to help energy consumers make more informed energy decisions and reduce their footprint so that as a whole, the state can proceed. It is funded by ratepayers. Everyone who gets their electricity from a regulated utility pays a little tax. <laughs> We're not supposed to say that, but the system benefits charge funds NYSERDA's programmatic interventions as well as utility modernizing their grid infrastructure. Within NYSERDA as a whole, it has many different heads. I spend my time within the market development teams those teams collectively spend about $150 million a year to design and implement incentive programs meant to raise standards within the industry, get buildings to do things they might not otherwise do. And typically in a pilot process, because the goal for all NYSERDA's programs is to prove the business case from a carbon reduction standpoint for an incentive so that utilities can subsequently scale the programs across their service territories and really maximize the potential savings and benefits. Within market development, we have recently been really focused on energy management technologies. We've been very focused on decarbonization strategies, and we are trying to find ways now to move beyond just electrification, because it's not enough to electrify your carbon emissions-based static. And so now the name of the game is creating the incentives to spur more investment in decarbonization. And we're seeing that in the form of technical assistance funding. NYSERDA loves technical assistance funding. If you want to pay an MEP firm to come tell you how to do things to enable your carbon strategy, NYSERDA would love to buy down the cost of that, okay. let more people do it. It becomes more commonplace. We see more manufacturers begin focusing on the New York market with their innovative products. You know, it's a lot of fun because one of the most glossed over aspects of NYSERDA's value prop is the standards and qualifications they advance in each individual program. 
And so one of the programs we'll dive into, real-time energy management, was super exciting to me because the team behind it looked at the state of the market and said, hey, this isn't good. A lot of people are buying a bunch of nonsense, and we should make it easier for folks to invest in these improvements by creating a bar and challenging the market to pass our bar to receive our R10 qualification so that the market can more easily differentiate from the many, many products and services on the market. Yeah, let's do jump into the R10 program. So I started working with RTEM, the RTEM team when I was at NREL in 2019, 2020 timeframe. And to, to my knowledge, there isn't any other program like it throughout the world. Um, people might write into me and tell me I'm wrong after this, but I don't, I don't think there is some, something that, um, like you said, qualifies and incentivizes uh, energy management information so systems, EMIS or analytics some software, sometimes people call it. I haven't seen anything like it, but beyond maybe the, the ComEd program in Chicago, there's like a little bit of monitoring-based commissioning incentives, but it's not the same uh, scale at which you guys are doing it. It's not the same amount of money. It's not the same recurring revenue that you, or you guys provide in terms of incentives. Um, so I guess my first question is, am I, am I correct in that? Is there is this unique uh, in terms of in New York and not anywhere else? Absolutely. And so to your point, there are utility incentives that will touch on similar systems, but none that I'm aware of that will touch on as holistic a collection of solutions because Artem is both system and services. Got it. Yeah, let's start with the history of it. So maybe go back to the beginning. What was what problem was this R10 program trying to solve? You, you kind of hinted at it a little bit. Sure. And so the history of the R10 program starts with another nice sort of program, the remote energy management program, Okay. which I won't touch on too much because it did not do what NYSERDA had hoped. There was this whole idea that we should make it easier for this information to be accessed. Your consumption data should be more accessible. If it's more accessible, it will be easier for you to use less energy and so on. And Interesting. Ultimately, ultimately, that program, I, this is my two cents, mind you, not nice sort of proper. That program did not hit its metrics in a manner that inspired a continuation of it because a lot of folks would take the incentive, install the system, and then never use it. Mm. And so the core starting place for Artem was, we need to ensure that the systems we subsidize are utilized. And that's yeah. where Artem services came in. And so zoom out on Artem, where eight years ago-ish, I started reviewing the landscape with its Artem technical advisor, shout out to Thomas Ye awesome guy. He's been dealing with automated demand response since the 80s. Easily one of the most knowledgeable people when it comes to this stuff in the entire world. Mm -hmm. He led an effort to review the status quo and came to the conclusion alongside NYSERDA that even for multinational BMS and controls vendors, the folks most able to sell products into the large New York City buildings, there weren't clear standards for what customers should expect from these solutions. And so 
you've talked about this a lot. Why would you get something to help you keep track of your consumption that didn't also include fault detection and diagnostics? Didn't also include predictive analytics and performance optimization. Some of these obvious use cases for the data that's being centralized. And so and I sort of said, hey, let's create a new standard through the R10 program that says, you are only eligible for our incentives for this new descriptor if you have a cloud-based platform that can draw data in 15 minute intervals or better that can produce the observations needed to enable our temp services, which put simply where the idea that even if the owner doesn't intend on using the systems necessarily, if you are pursuing an RTEM project, there will be a vendor required to use the system for at least a year so that we don't end up with orphan technology as we have in the past. Yeah. And those services are predicated on recommending energy conservation measures based on the data, taking the data, analyzing it to then make recommendations for how to do better going forward. And so that was the core idea. It started with just base building systems and ultimately provided a 30% cost share against total project costs, which is also very exciting because it's not a, it was not a performance-based incentive, like what you might've been able to do through Con Edison or excuse me, other utilities. It was, hey, if you work with us to scope a project with an approved RTEM vendor, we will, cut a check to that vendor to reduce the total project cost and de-risk the investment, make it easier for you to go further, do more. That pro program was well-received. It's now subsidized RTEM installations and services in over a thousand buildings. It has impacted over 300 million square feet and pumped out over $75 million in incentives to those projects. But the biggest testament to its success is now Con Edison, our local utility here, is offering a similar program that offers a 70% cost share with a performance metric, but a 70% cost share for similar systems. And that is always the best indication of my service success when yeah. Con Ed's willing to take, out, take it up and run with it. You know, they don't like running with a lot of things. That's awesome. Hey guys, just another quick note from our sponsor, Nexus Labs, and then we'll get back to the show. This episode is brought to you by Nexus Foundations, our introductory course on the smart buildings industry. If you're new to the industry, this course is for you. If you're an industry vet, but want to understand how technology is changing things, this course is also for you. The alumni are raving about the content, which they say pulls it all together. And they also loved getting to meet the other students on the weekly Zoom calls and in the private chat room. You can find out more about the course at courses.nexuslabs.online. All right, back to the interview. And so how many, you said a thousand buildings, how many vendors are approved? Because I think a, a huge piece of this, right, is you looking at the marketplace and going, and I've done a lot of this for, for clients as well. Like there are so many people that say they do this from a technology standpoint. Um, you guys are basically saying like, we're going to validate each one of these one by one and they're going to become uh, you know, a certified R10 vendor. 
So how many, how many, how many did you look at, I guess, and then how many, how many made it through the funnel? Exactly. And so the original program received over 300 vendor applications seeking qualifications, of which we approved just over 100, of which I think we saw projects from about 75. Okay. But that that filtering is one of the fundamental value props, because if you're a real estate company or management firm, you don't have time to validate a lot of these claims. And what regularly gets glossed over even among the most effective vendors is, you know, in the best case scenario, they'll save you 30% on your energy bill. Mm -hmm. But that assumes that your building is not very well run. And if you do happen to have a very well run office building, the value proposition might be closer to five or 8% annual savings. And so- having an entity that's able to validate these claims is very important for fostering more of these investment decisions. Yeah. And is that list of a hundred published so that people in other markets could maybe start there as a place to go look at vendors? So once upon a time it was, however, as Nyserta enjoys doing, we have moved on to try and push the envelope further the 1.0 program, as we used to refer to it, has been replaced by a new program called R10 Plus Tenants. And this is a similar premise where we're looking to foster more investments in qualified system and services, but it is a new higher bar because we realized from the first program that the final frontier for optimizing buildings and getting after carbon emissions is by going deeper into the building, not just focused on base building systems and the backbone within owner's control, but within tenant spaces, integrating into the equipment they have. Because there are lots of horror stories where a tenant has a DX unit in a server room, but they failed to insulate the room effectively and so it's on 24 7 trying to cool the entire floor instead of just the room (laughs) and no one has any idea but Nyserta is now trying to solve this through the R10 plus tenants program because we will provide a 33 percent cost share for projects that now go deeper provide that tenant equipment integration provide some additional sub metering provide power quality meters and really take a more holistic approach to optimizing buildings while facilitating the collaboration needed to reduce carbon emissions because in a typical New York City office building, the tenants will be responsible for 50 or 60% of the energy consumption. So if you're only working with half the load, the upside is minimal. And so the new program has been around for about a year now. We have approved 17 vendors. It is a higher bar because now, in addition to everything from 1.0, you have to have this tenant piece. You also have to have a machine learning or AI component to your service. And so we don't expect to get up to 100 again. We expect this to be a smaller program, but you know, a lot of folks are now realizing that 
this is a great thing to pursue because they can get system incentives from Con Edison mm. and then for make ready costs or ongoing service costs, they can come to NYSERDA and we'll pick up that back end, make it easier for them to go deeper into tenant spaces. We're, we're hopeful that we'll see some owners embrace automation and seek to control tenant equipment where that makes sense. But mm-hmm. it, it is very much top of mind for us to see landlords collaborating more proactively with their tenants on energy management. Got it. And so what are some of the features that a RTEM vendor needs to have to sort of check that tenant box? What does it need to be able to do? Yeah. And so we need to be able to see at least 75% of the load of the building through the platform. It needs to be, it, it doesn't need to be able to control, but it has to integrate into the tenant space the vendor has to advance a tenant engagement plan that lists out over a period of one to three years how they will deliver that same sort of energy conservation measure recommendations to tenants and not Got just it. the okay. base building systems. We, we again, this is uh, up to it's a bit more subjective because you have to convince Thomas Ye that whatever your AI ML use cases qualifies, but we, we are seeking some component there. And, you know, hopefully we'll see a lot more folks go whole building because in a number of instances, we will see the landlord go very deep in the controls on their equipment, but not really mm-hmm. touch their tenants. It's historically been a black box, what's going on in their space. Yeah. And as long as they're getting their checks, they haven't cared, but we, we want to do away with that if only to facilitate collaboration. But at maximum, this is where we can get into more interesting things like local law 97 fine avoidance, which is a big deal here because landlords are responsible for their tenants consumption as it relates to the fines that the city Mm -hmm. will one day bring about and so we want to see much more collaboration and we want to see much more integration of equipment than we have historically got it got it yeah i'm i'd love to maybe we'll have to follow up with thomas on this but like i would love to see his qualification method around what meets the bar for ML AI and what doesn't? Because that just just from my perspective, if you look at you said hundred, you said third three hundred vendors have called themselves an RTEM system at some point. I would I would venture to guess that at least maybe two hundred and ninety nine of them say we do AI and ML right, and it's probably very difficult to say well which which of those claims are true and which ones are not. Absolutely. And Thomas lives and breathes this stuff. I I think a lot of it is meant to be subjective because we want to be able to Yeah, keep raising that bar. Exactly. There's some wiggle room there. But if you can't convince Thomas, then you can't get in. (laughs) Uh, I love it. I love it. Um, so 
talk to me about the future of the RTEM program because you had RTEM 1.0, now you have RTEM plus tenants. And then now what's, what's, where is this headed? Yeah, and so the story of R10 so far has been making it easier to manage your energy consumption, making it easier to bring everything into a single pane of glass. And that's been helpful for a number of folks, but as we look to the future and start thinking more holistically about the future of office, we realize the need to advance to a single pane of truth. And by that, I mean, every IoT system you deploy might have its own dashboard. And while it might be enough to bring all of those dashboards together into one, if you don't also have confidence that the devices are calibrated and producing the data that's trustworthy, it's not enough. That's why we're going to tenant spaces now because we wanna make sure that all of that equipment is brought together and brought together in a way that inspires confidence that the owners and managers understand what's happening. And mm. as we, we start thinking more holistically about what happens in spaces, we're now working on a new program that we're hoping to roll out later this year. It will be within Artem, but as a pilot initiative focused on dedicated outdoor air systems. And in particular, advancing a new paradigm of floor by floor decarbonization. Mm, how, okay. how, how can we take advantage of tenant turnover to enable a more hardware driven control of the tenant experience? Mm. We, we see this a lot already in new construction and in major repositionings where a building might see a nine-figure retrofit budget, but when it comes to the vast majority of our buildings and the trigger point of tenant turnover, it never happens as far as we know. And so we're now trying to think through ways where we can make it more accessible for owners to gain access to the technical expertise they need to begin scoping these types of upgrades but also we're trying to figure out how we can get into the implementation incentive as well. So that bit's a bit complicated because Nestor never has enough money to do that. And so how can we design a program that inspires people to think about upgrades at tenant turnover more without having to pay them the total cost of those types of upgrades? And very specifically, when we've looked at some of these retrofits, the price estimates we've seen have been anywhere from 12 to over a hundred dollars a square foot. Wow. And you know, that's, that's usually not very tenable for real estate companies to just get behind. Yeah. But that's why nice start is important because if we can find a way to advance these types of upgrades with that in mind, then mm-hmm. we'll all be better for it. Yeah. Let's go back to this. Did you call it singer, single source of truth or what did you call it? Yeah, single, single source of truth. Source, single pain, whatever. Mm-hmm. Helping yeah. folks feel good about their data. Yeah, exactly. And that's where, you know, you, you've listened to this show a lot before we talk about the value of the independent data layer, right? And so it feels like to me, you guys are shifting more towards, okay, you were incentivizing 
EMIS applications, energy management information system applications. And when you described that, it sounded like you were more focused on, okay, how can we enable and incentivize this more data infrastructure layer? Is that right? That's exactly right. Interesting. So we want to make it easier for all of this to live in one place, but live in one place in an actual manner. And so if okay. we keep with the paradigm that only the leading owners are ever going to deal with this information themselves, we need to create systems within buildings that enable vendors that work for those owners to feel good about all of the inputs. Because we don't want to end up in a scenario where a vendor comes along and says, oh, I need to deploy all of these duplicative devices because mm -hmm. I don't trust any of your data. But if we can create new standards for the system such that any vendor that walks into one of these buildings feels good that the inputs are trustworthy, then we can hopefully avoid unnecessary investment and increase the adoption of these types of solutions. Got it. Got it. Makes perfect sense. I'm glad to hear it. That's great. Uh, <laughs> well, I'm obviously biased. Like I, I, I feel very strongly about the need for that layer in, in the stack. So um, I think more people getting on board for that and more incentives for it because the business case is really difficult. Like you're not really enabling an outcome. You're enabling the infrastructure that could then enable an outcome, right? So it's the incentives are needed in certain areas where the right thing to do isn't necessarily the most obvious thing to do financially from a first step standpoint. Um, so you've talked about decarbonization a little bit. I'd love to hear your just maybe just a more general question around how does RTEM, which has traditionally been focused on energy efficiency, like basically monitoring a building to find energy conservation measures, right? How does that overlap with a building's decarbonization um, roadmap? Because what we talked about with the DOAS systems was, to me, that's like a capital project that needs to happen that's focused on getting to a different system type or a different system you know, fuel, right? That's running the system, right? So that gets to more towards decarbonization, which is totally different, not totally different, but different than energy efficiency, right? Different than monitoring. You have your capital upgrades and then you have your ongoing monitoring piece. So how are you guys thinking about the decarbonization sort of road roadmap as a, as a program? Or maybe that's a different program. I don't know. It is a different program, but okay. I, I do want to try and tackle this because this is an area that we are presently refining the messaging around. And so I'd love your take. But okay. put simply, RTEM is the enabling technology that will unlock tools like time of use carbon for your building. If you okay. don't have an RTEM system in place, it's very hard for you to take a stance on yeah. the quality of your electrons at any given time, because not mm -hmm. all electrons are created equal. And if you can take operational approaches that rely more heavily on times of day that are less likely to trigger say fossil fuel fire peaker plants in con edison territory that's a benefit to decarbonization and so creating the infrastructure you need to understand your consumption granularly enough mm -hmm. that you can match it up with the generation 
that's feeding your grid at that any given time makes it easier to pursue decarbonization, makes it easier for you to get into things like offsets because, you know, for better or for worse, it's still the wild west where how do you really know if your offset is being mm -hmm. used once and being retired? And it's only through R10 and similar installations on the generation side that you can begin matching up the electrons so that you can have confidence that this is actually decarbonization. It's not just greenwashing and mm -hmm. saying we're doing it, throwing money at the problem without actually having an impact. Totally. Yeah, I agree. That's why I put, I mean, that's, that's where they're, those the two are related, right? So when I think about this, I think about like, what's the journey I have to go on to get from setting a target for carbon all the way to meeting that target and maintaining that performance over time. So you have this, like, those of you that are on YouTube can see me like in this linear fashion, you have this linear step. It's not totally not linear, but I like to draw it linearly just to show it, but I like to put interval meter data analytics, like before the capital upgrade process, right? So you have to know, number one, you start with utility bills. That's a monthly data stream. Get more granular into interval data. Helps you see what your load profile is. Helps you see how you're using energy. So I put that, yeah, up front. And then once you do the capital project to upgrade things, decarbonize, then you can use that same technology, R10 technology to then monitor a building to see, did it work? Am I performing like I thought I would, that kind of thing. But I think the challenge is there are two separate things, monitoring with technology and analyzing a building and doing a capital, like huge infrastructure project to change out equipment to get to where the building uses less carbon from an infrastructure standpoint, two separate uh, concepts. And so I, I can see the challenge with, with incentivizing both at the same time. We're, we're trying to hit that middle ground where the real-time benchmarking enabled by Artem makes it easier to make the business case for the capital. Totally. Mm -hmm. Totally. Makes sense to me. <laughs> uh, okay, let's talk about the hackathon. So I know it's going on right now. So by the time this podcast comes out, you guys will... Um, It'll be about a week or two away from the demo day. So can you just talk about maybe start from the beginning? What are the goals of the, the, the RTEM hackathon? Absolutely. And so it's very much what we were just talking about. How can we relate RTEM to decarbonization? NYSERDA has been collecting interval data from all of the projects that have received RTEM subsidies. NYSERDA has created a repository, a data lake for all of that data and is now trying to think through use cases for the data that will accelerate decarbonization of large buildings in New York. Unlike a more traditional NYSERDA approach where they would just decide, hey, here's the use case. Mm -hmm. This time we are actively soliciting ideas from the market through a hackathon. We've created a API that provides participants with access to over 200 buildings data. This is everything from the BAS connected devices, utility meters, equipment submeters, IoT devices, all normalized using 
project haystack and brick standards so that you can see it uniformly across all of the all of the assets even with the different vendors underlying each all of it's been anonymized and through the hackathon participants gain access to the api and are challenged to create or at least theorize a use case that again connects the data to decarbonization we are evaluating these submissions based on their write-ups based on their github documentation but giving a big focus on what the use case is, how it helps the business case for decarbonization, how it helps the business case for RTEM upgrades without incentives, as well as things like the ease of implementation and use of other data sources. Okay. The goal being that by the time this comes out, we will have received over a hundred really awesome submissions that advance these use cases for what R10 data can mean for broader decarbonization. As you mentioned, we will be having our demo day. It's hosted by the Building Energy Exchange, ASHRAE New York, as well as the New York City Mayor's Office for Climate and Environmental Justice. It's on June 28th that afternoon and i highly recommend all of your audience sign up because we will be awarding fifty five thousand dollars in cash prizes to our top three use cases and we've gotten a lot of awesome awesome registrants already hopefully they'll all submit awesome use cases but just from a registration perspective we have over 450 signups across 300 teams including quite a few of your guests, folks like Audit, Brilliant Box AI, Google, Prescriptive Data, Switch Automation. We have an NREL sign-up, as well as some other teams from national labs like Berkeley and PNNL. We have uh, over two dozen universities represented in the registrations, a bunch of MEP firms, and so we're really hoping that some very talented, energy-minded, and data science-minded individuals will identify the use case that makes our last conversation much easier. Because they're going <laughs> to demonstrate how some data directly supports decarbonization. Love it. Love it. I love to see the, the labs competing against each other. It's like the battle of the buildings expert laboratories, too. That's fun. I, I know I that, right? That rivalry between NREL and LBNL and PNNL, fr fr frenemy rivalry is is strong. So uh, I'm sure they'll be looking to beat one another for sure. And then you have the startups, all the startups competing against each other and the labs. That sounds that sounds amazing. Um, what, when you say use case, what do you mean? What's an example of what a use case might look like? So that's an excellent question and we are very flexible here it might be something as simple as a tool to evaluate the impact of the rtm projects based on the data so that we could for example compare and contrast across asset types it's not apples to apples and so anything that could help with the comparison would be nice 
I'm assuming we'll get a great deal of visualization tools, things mm -hmm. that just make it easier to interact with this data. Because ultimately, if you make RTEM data more engaging, more interesting, then it should support a wider variety of energy decisions. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So something to say, okay, we have all these buildings have like contributed all these, all this data. A use case is how do we use this data to advance decarbonization in New York City, essentially? No, thank you. Perfect. Thank you. You're so good at demystifying. <laughs> so good. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, I just, I, I'm, I'm rather slow at learning. And so I feel like I have to repeat it to make sure I understand it. Um, well, Ryan, this has been super fun. Let's, let's end with carve outs. I'd love to hear what book, TV show, movie, or et cetera, would you recommend the audience checks out? Sure. And so for anyone who was intrigued by my prop tech Santa Claus title, highly recommend prop tech 101 by aaron bloss and zach aaron okay it is a wonderful primer for all things prop tech will give you a bit of a historic perspective on how we came to even refer to it as prop tech but really walks you through how real estate companies are thinking about it and how venture capitalists are increasingly focused on serving those real estate companies Got it. Yeah, I'll put that in the show notes. Okay, mine, mine is uh, I want to I want to share Farnham Street. So Farnham Street blog is something I've been reading, listening to the podcast for like a decade now, maybe more than that. I'm surprised that we've made this many, we've made it through this many episodes without me talking about Farnham Street. But the concept of a mental model is something I think everyone should check out. And there's these three books behind me. I'm like pointing to these red books. Um, the, the three, the th there's like three volumes of the great mental models. And so it, it sounds actually super boring, but it's, it's really interesting how simple concepts and simple frameworks really can be used to understand how the world works. Um, and so I use a lot of frameworks and use a lot of mental models in the course. And I feel like it's our foundations course. And I feel like I, I owe a lot to um, Shane Parrish who started Farnham Street. And uh, I think everyone should check out and at least subscribe to his weekly newsletter, Brain Food. Are you, are, are you a fan? You're, you're not, I'm not familiar, but- You should check it out. Exactly. Not totally has nothing to do with any, any smart buildings topic, but it's just general getting better at life topic. Nice. Thanks for the tip. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to meet you, Ryan, and uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. All right, friends. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nexus Podcast. For more episodes like this and to get the weekly Nexus newsletter, which, by the way, readers have said is the best way to stay up to date on the future of the smart building industry, please subscribe at nexuslabs.online. You can find the show notes for this conversation there as well. Have a great day. Thank you.